Well, I don't know if you have given much thought to that idea of whether or not Christ is worthy of this. Is he worthy of uh, so many people showing up, not just here, but all over the world today and throughout all the centuries gathering to celebrate this day, this Easter day, this resurrection day? Is he worthy of choirs and orchestras? Is he worthy of all the songs that have been written? Is he worthy of all the praise? Is he worthy of all the lives that are dedicated to him? Is he worthy of you? Is he worthy of your sacrifice? Is he worthy? The Bible, of course, would answer the question with a resounding yes. He is worthy, and he's worthy for a number of reasons, but for one overriding reason, he's worthy because he, he's the one who died and rose again. At least from our vantage point and from our perspective, those of us who are subject to death, every one of us facing death and, and the inevitable realities of that, that final end, every one of us who are enslaved, as the scripture says, to death. There's nothing you can do about it. You can have all of the medical advances you want. You can have all of the, the, the pills and the doctors and the, the treatments and, and everything that you might pursue. You can have it all, but you will never escape that final reality on your own. You can't because death, we're told very clearly, is the result not just of natural biological processes, it's the result of sin. God did not design life so that you and I were meant to die. God had, God had designed life, if you read the scripture, originally with Adam and Eve, with man and woman in the garden. He placed them there. He told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with so many others like them. He placed them there so that they could live forever. There was no death in God's original design. But we know things didn't remain that way. We know that sin entered into the world. And we know that because of sin, death entered into the world. And man and woman were plunged into a life that is now subject to death, as well as creation, which is subject to groaning, to decay, Deterioration, futility, suffering. That's where we find ourselves today. We find ourselves in a world that is corrupted and, and uh, distorted and spiraling in toward its own destruction. We find ourselves in a world of chaos and, and darkness because of this infiltration of sin. But this is the day when we remind ourselves it was not intended to be that way. God did not intend us to live this way. He intended us to live forever. He intended us to live without the fear of death. He intended us to live without the disease and without the suffering, without the heartache and the harm. He intended us to live that way. And yet because of sin, we've been subjected to all of these things. So God devised a plan of salvation. That plan of salvation was in order to restore what had been lost. 
That is to say, he wanted to restore not only peace and joy, all those sort of internal delights that we have when we come to know Christ, but he wanted to restore life everlasting the way it was intended to be. Bodily, corporeally, you might say, physically, for all eternity. And so salvation, as God has devised it, was in order to redeem us, not just in soul, but in body, to restore us, not just on the inside, but on the outside. Salvation was in order to save us in totality, our, our spirits and our bodies and our souls. So this is what Christianity is about. This is the cornerstone of our faith. This is why, this is why Easter is so important and so vital to everything that we do as Christians, Because this is the day that we celebrate the ultimate victory over death and because of that, the ultimate victory over sin. See, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he rose not only as as God, but he rose as man. He rose as one who came and took on flesh in human form and was able to conquer death and thereby provide a guarantee, provide the evidence that not only death had death been defeated, but the very cause of death, which is sin, had been overcome. This is the way salvation had to happen. This is the way salvation had to be. It had to be with a bodily resurrection, otherwise there is no salvation. Now, there was a day and time when all of this was in jeopardy. Early on in the church, this was seriously questioned. Uh, the, the epicenter, if you want to think about it this way, was in the former uh, Greek colonies, in the Greek cities, uh, cities like Athens and Corinth, where there were great halls of philosophy and lots of philosophical debate. Because it all arose out of Greek philosophical thinking that that challenged this notion that eternal existence could be in bodily form. They thought about things like the afterlife. They thought about places similar to heaven. They thought about our spirits and our souls. They thought about things maybe similar to Christianity, but but dramatically different at its fundamental level. The Greeks believed that salvation was possible apart from a resurrection. They believed that salvation was possible just in sort of a a spiritual form. And this thinking, this philosophical mindset had infiltrated one church in particular, the church of Corinth and Paul writes to address this issue in the book of Corinthians, which will be our passage for today. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's writing to a church here who had apparently come to embrace an idea of salvation, or at least were flirting with an idea of salvation, that had no bodily resurrection. It had no real... uh, victory over death in that sense, no restoration of the garden, 
No return to God's original plan. It was a salvation that was non-bodily, non-body resurrection, non-body, excuse me, salvation, no resurrection included. Now, in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul states the central issue very plainly. In verse 12, he says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Apparently, this is what some of them were saying. They were saying there is no resurrection. That's an impossibility. As I said, Greek thought sort of separated this notion of salvation from bodily resurrection. As a matter of fact, they thought that to be in, in existence for all eternity with a body was somehow a, a corruption. It was somehow a secondary or diminished idea of eternal bliss. You could not just go on existing forever in a body and have real peace and real joy and real happiness. In order to be really released from suffering, in order to be really released from all your pain and all your misery, in order to be really released in the sense of salvation, you had to be released from your body. You had to go into a different kind of existence. And so they, they promoted this idea that, that eternity, life after death, had to be in a non-bodily form. And this infiltrated the church and there were some who were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. There's nothing after we die except some sort of spiritual, non-material existence beyond the grave. Well, Paul brings out the implications of that idea in these verses that follow. You can see in verse 13, he says... But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. This is Paul's fundamental argument. This is the fundamental cornerstone of Christianity. This is everything that we are about as believers, and everything that we are about as a church. This this basic idea That Jesus Christ defeated death because he defeated sin. Paul reverses all this and sort of arguing against the negative. He says, if there is no resurrection, then Christ wasn't raised. And if Christ is not raised, that means that he was ultimately defeated by death. It doesn't matter if you have a spiritual existence, sort of a a soul that flies from your body onto the cl- into the clouds of heaven. doesn't matter if you have any of that stuff. What he's saying is that God designed man with bodily form. And when he sinned, the penalty was that his body died. 
And if his body continues to die, then sin continues to reign. And if sin continues to reign, then salvation doesn't exist. If Christ is not raised, then death ultimately defeated him. And if death ultimately defeated him, then sin remains unconquered. And if sin remains unconquered, then there is no salvation. That's his argument. Now, some of these Corinthians apparently begun to question that. Their love of worldly philosophy, their love of Greek philosophy, their their intent on being found in the eyes of the world as as erudite and as sophisticated and as sort of intelligent. They love to think of themselves in that way and present themselves in that way. And so they were so ready to embrace these ideas out of Greek philosophy. And as I said, the Greek philosophers taught that after death there was nothing. You were eliminated altogether or if you did continue to exist, you just existed in some sort of non-material form. Many Greek philosophers taught this. Plutarch, for example, speaks of the afterlife and he says, let us therefore take the safe course and grant with Pindar our bodies all must follow death's supreme behest. But something living still survives, an image of life, for this alone comes from the gods, Yet it comes from them and to them it returns, not with its body, but only when it is most completely separated and set free from the body and becomes altogether pure, fleshless, and undefiled. For, he says, a dry soul is best, according to Heraclitus, and it flies from the body as lightning flashes from the cloud. This is Greek philosophy. This is what they taught. You remember Paul, even in the book of Acts, was teaching at uh, the Areopagus in Athens. And when he was teaching and, and defending the faith, he brought up the resurrection. And as soon as he brought up the resurrection, we're told in Acts 17 that they began to sneer at him. This whole idea that someone can die and live again was ludicrous to them. They pictured the afterlife as something merely hollow, a shadow of real existence at best. But anything but a true restoration of creation. This was the dominant view. Uh, Plutarch himself was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. This was the dominant view in the first century. And unfortunately had begun to shape the ideas of this church. That's so radically different from what Scripture teaches about our salvation. And Paul wants to clarify that for these believers. He wants to clarify for them what are the consequences if you reject the notion that Jesus Christ rose from the dead in His body. You remember, this is the focal point of his gospel message, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confessing the resurrection of Christ is the focal point of our message of salvation. 
It is the truth that Jesus' physical resurrection brought about our salvation that made Paul so adamant in this particular passage to make sure that they understood the importance of ever wavering in this truth. The whole chapter really is about this from verse 1 all the way through 58. Paul had just laid out even in the opening verses, the first 11 verses, four proofs of the resurrection in the gospel message itself, in the scriptures, in the apostles and their own, their own testimony and witness to this and all the preaching of the early church. But beginning in verse 14, he launches then into four tragic consequences if a believer denies the resurrection. Once you've done away with the physical resurrection of Christ, he's telling us that dominoes begin to fall so that your entire faith is undermined. It is futile. If Christ has not been raised, there are four tragic consequences to the Christian faith. First, he tells us in verses 14 and 15, if Christ has not been raised, then there's no credibility for our scripture. If Christ hasn't been raised, there's no credibility for our scripture. Or as he says there in verse 14, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. In other words, for you to say that Christ had no physical resurrection or back up and this, say this, for you to say that there is no such thing as a bodily physical resurrection is for you to immediately implicate the apostles and everything they preached and taught and wrote. It is to basically imply that they were liars, that their teaching is intentional misrepresentation of the facts. And this, of course, would be critical because as we're taught in a number of places, that the church is founded, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Or as we read in Acts chapter 2, that the early church began with weekly gatherings devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. You know, in God's wisdom, Jesus Christ himself never wrote a single word of Scripture. In God's providence and wisdom, he never passed down to us anything that came from himself. Everything that we have that we know about him, God in his wisdom has passed down to us through the hands of the apostles. It is their teaching, it is their writings, it is their doctrine which defines the church. And so for us to deny The resurrection is to label all of those men who gave testimony to it as liars. Paul had already made the point back in verse 11 that they, along with all the early preachers, unanimously preached this resurrection. There were were hundreds of people who claimed to be witnesses to this resurrection. And if you ask any of the apostles why they believed in Jesus Christ, they would all have one unified answer. It's because he rose from the dead. 
This was the heart of their message. This was the heart of their preaching. You can go through the book of Acts and just look at their sermons. And you can find over and over and over again, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 10, 13, 17, on and on and again. You look at the apostolic sermons of the early church and what you find is the resurrection is the cornerstone of their message. He would point to this again and again. Acts 17.31, Paul proclaimed that God will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This is the validation of not only of his salvation, this is a validation of the fact that God is going to judge all men. This is the validation of our message. This is a proof that was given to us. And so to say that there is no resurrection from the dead is to imply that these men are testifying, as Paul says here, against God, saying that, in fact, he did something he didn't do. The apostles all claim to have seen him, including the Apostle Paul, in his resurrected bodily form. And they all gave testimony to that. And so to say that there is no resurrection is to imply a massive level of collusion among these men. They would have had to be men of such low character, of such low moral uh, heart that they would have had no problem agreeing together to fabricate this story. In fact, they would have gone to their death for this kind of a lie. So if you deny the resurrection, you immediately deny all the apostles, all of their teaching, all of their writing the very foundation of the church. Verse 16. Paul states the issue again, denying the physical resurrection of Christ, denying his bodily resurrection has a second consequence, which is more critical. And that is that there is no forgiveness of sins. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. This is the, this is the foundation, the core of everything. The Bible is unmistakably clear of the necessity of salvation. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can look with me over at Romans chapter 4. When the Apostle Paul gives this summary... He says in verse 23 of Romans chapter 4, the words it was counted to him were not written for our own sake, for his own sake, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up, he says in verse 25, for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Christ's death on the cross displayed God's wrath against our sins, that is to say our trespasses, our transgressions. That's why he was nailed to the cross. He was nailed to the cross 
because God's wrath must be directed in some just way against some object to punish sin. And so Christ goes to the cross to be that object, to take that punishment. He was delivered up for our trespasses. But he also was raised, Paul says, for our justification. For our, if you want to say it this way, our declaration or God's declaration that you and I are just. Our justification. Him being raised from the dead was absolutely necessary. This bodily resurrection was absolutely necessary for God to declare that you and I are accepted by Him. You see, because all of our sins and all of our failures and all of our rebellion and all the hardness of our heart, because of all those things, the only thing that could ever deal with that is God's wrath being satisfied in some fashion, some, you might say, exchange for our life, which took place on the cross. And this happened when Christ went to his death. And not only that, he had to be a perfect sacrifice. It would not do just to have any old sinner it couldn't be just any person that you choose or, or even presented themselves. Just any old sinner wouldn't do. Whoever took our place to absorb God's wrath had to be perfect. First Peter 1 says, We were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not by perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb who is without blemish or spot this is what made Christ's sacrifice unique but it was also the very thing which provided for his resurrection he was the only one who could offer himself on the cross to take our sins but he was the only one who could not be defeated by death because he had no sin of his own I don't know if you thought about this, but when you read through the scriptures, there are a number of resurrections. There are resurrections in the Old Testament. There are resurrections in the New Testament. Elijah, you remember, raised people from the dead in the Old Testament. Lazarus was even raised from the dead in the New Testament. There are people who are raised from the dead, but Jesus' resurrection was unique Because none of them, even though they were raised from the dead, none of them were ever raised to incorruptibility. That is to say, they came out of the grave, but they came out of the grave in the same corruptible bodies in which they had died, meaning that they rose from the dead in order to die again. They would, raise, they would be raised from the dead in whatever age or capacity they were in, go on and live their life however many years they have, but then they would all die again. But when Jesus rose from the grave, he rose incorruptible. His resurrection was testimony to the fact that he was undefeated by death, undefeated by sin. And the victory over death was proven with a body that does not die. In other words, a dead Savior would have been a, a Savior who, is, 
who had been conquered by death. And if he was conquered by death, it would mean that he was also conquered by sin. The same that Adam and Eve, the same that you and I are conquered by sin. But a living Savior proves that the curse of death which is sin, had been defeated. The sacrifice had paid the penalty for sin, and sin had been defeated. This is exactly why Paul says at the book, opening of the book of Romans that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. It declared Him, this resurrection declared Him to be fundamentally different than every other person who had ever died. You know, one of the reasons that people struggle so much with the idea of a resurrection today is because they just can't reconcile it in their heads. They, they think, well, that's, that's not possible. I mean, we have for centuries studied life. We've studied biology. We've studied, and there's one thing that we know over and over again is that when people die, they stay dead. That's the one thing we can say. It's impossible for the dead to rise. The body decays. The body rots. The body returns to dust. We know that. I mean, those are scientific facts that are observable again and again and again. And you can't have a faith that, that rejects science. You can't have a faith that goes against science. You've got to stand submissive to the facts of the universe. And the facts of the universe are that when someone dies, they stay dead. Well, that is certainly true, except the unspoken assumption in all of that is that you're studying sinful people. You're studying only uh, objects who were born corruptible. You were born into sin. But what happens to the premise if the person who died is not sinful? Have you yet studied a person who has no sin on your table of biology? We've never had that opportunity, except for once. And he came to the earth without sin, and he died, and he rose again. Sinners die, that's the reality. If there was no sin, there would be no death. But because there is sin, there's death, everyone dies. And in Christ, if he died and remained dead, it could only imply one thing, that he had sin. But if he died and did not stay dead, he rose from the dead, it could only prove the opposite that sin could not defeat him and so death could not defeat him. Or if you want to reverse that, death couldn't defeat him because he had no sin. And so when the resurrection is taken out of the gospel, when you deny the bodily resurrection, you deny the resurrection of Christ. You deny the resurrection of Christ, then you're left with sin still reigning and death still reigning. That's why Paul says that your faith, verse 17, is futile and you're still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. It would be like 
It, it would be like uh, having a sunken battleship as the chief means of your naval defense. You'd be putting all of your hope in a defeated object. Or like a bunch of kids sitting around playing tea party, pouring an empty pot into empty cups and eating wonderful delicacies from empty plates. So while we all imagine that we're dining on these rich dainties, we're in fact doing nothing but playing games. That would be your Christianity. It would be empty, it would be hollow, it would be worthless. Our Christianity would be nothing but a bunch of lies if death had not been defeated. Because sin would still reign. But Paul's message, of course, is that that's not true. That is not our message. We are not playing games. We're not just making things up. We are celebrating a risen Savior. We're celebrating one who did conquer death because he did conquer sin. And he offers salvation to the whole world. And so to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead means that you will be saved. That death will not defeat you and sin cannot be your conqueror. There's a third consequence, by the way, that Paul mentions here in verse 18. That if you deny the resurrection, he says also that you have no comfort in the loss of your loved ones. Verse 18 He says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, you reject this idea. If you have some notion of salvation that's just sort of ethereal, you sort of sort of fly from your body in some some uh, mystical, ghostly, non-material fashion. If that's all you think of whenever you think of heaven, then you might as well reject the idea of hope for your lost loved ones. If you reject the idea of bodily resurrection, then all your loved ones who died in Christ died believing a lie. They died trusting a Savior who himself couldn't defeat death because himself couldn't defeat sin. And so they're doomed for all eternity with no opportunity to ever discover the truth because what they believed was a lie. These aren't just debates for academic purposes, not just debates for abstract philosophy. If you deny the resurrection, you destroy the foundation of your faith in the present. You destroy the foundation of faith from others in the past who've already died. And you've lost all hope. It's so interesting listening to the world, if you will, listening to people who really have no room in their life for God, no interest in expressing uh, hope in God or faith in God or obedience to God. It's so interesting to listen to how spiritual they become when they lose a loved one. They all comfort one another with the same sort of shallow words. He's in a better place. She's in a better place. They're happy now, whatever it might be. Just some sort of neutral, nebulous, spiritual statement. Any Greek philosopher, any pagan idolater, any Hindu, any Muslim would accept that kind of a statement. But as believers, our message is different. For lost loved ones, it is clear. They have the hope of the resurrection. 
They've died, but they'll live again. They've died, but there's the resurrection. And so your lost loved ones, Paul says, you can be comforted in their loss because you have accepted the truth of the resurrection of Christ. If you don't, there's no foundation for hope. And along with that, a fourth consequence of denying the resurrection, verse 19, there's no future hope for present believers. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If you have a version of Christianity or a version of spirituality or a version of the afterlife, if you have that and all you have is the hope of some sort of non-material existence, some sort of, some sort of uh, vague world of shadows, if you have no real answer for death, then you have no real answer for sin and you are to be pitied. If all you have is hope in this life and you have no hope beyond the grave, no hope of another life, then you're to be pitied. Paul says down in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 15, He says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus and our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if this is all just fantasy, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then why in the world do I bother to make sacrifices? Why do I die every day? Why do I risk my life for the sake of the gospel? Why do I deny myself any kind of pleasures at all? Why not just eat and drink? Why not just make merry with everything I have? Why not just indulge myself while I have the few moments that I have in this life? Why not go ahead and live it up while I can? Because when we die, if we die... That's it. There's nothing beyond that. If you deny the resurrection, this would be your worldview. But that's not us. That's not us. We are those who believe that there is something that exists beyond the grave whereby Christ will raise you and I in like fashion to his own resurrected body Christian life does at times demand that we live with this eternal focus Paul says in Philippians 3:20 our citizenship is in heaven from whom we await a savior from which we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body This is where our focus is our focus is on that day when our Our lowly, our corrupted, our painful, our decaying bodies are transformed into a body just like His. And so even now, as we deny ourselves, whatever we deny ourselves, as we pursue Christ, as we pursue godliness, as we make sacrifices to minister to others, as we preach and teach and pray and give and serve, as we do all of those things We do all of those things because we understand that this is not our ultimate life. 
Our citizenship is in a life after this. In a resurrected life, in a kingdom that is coming where Christ reigns and we serve Him in the perfection of our glorified bodies. Our joy then is based on this. Our hope, our peace is based on this. We have tremendous joy. In fact, even in our sacrifices, we have tremendous joy. In our service, we have tremendous joy. We have tremendous hope. We enjoy blessings of God in this life. We enjoy our families. We enjoy our our spouses, our marriages, our children, our jobs. We enjoy all the good things that the Lord pours out into our life because of this hope. Peter states it like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, so that we obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away and is reserved in heaven for you. But he says, In this... Even now, you greatly rejoice. I mean, we have tremendous joy right now. We have tremendous delight right now. But we have that because of what is in store in our inheritance. You take all that away. You take away the inheritance. You take away the resurrection. You take away the afterlife. You take away all that. Paul says, we are of all men most to be pitied. Everything hinges on this resurrection. You cannot have a meaningful life without this kind of sacrifice. You can't have a meaningful life full of self-indulgence and full of sort of uh, 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 living it up for your own sinful impulses. You can't have a meaningful life and yet at the same time you can't have a life of sacrifice that is given away on a vain hope that there would be a resurrection. You can't have true, lasting joy without the resurrection. But we have all of that because of our hope in Christ. This is our message. Christ, as Paul says in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised. And because of that, the joys of this life are rich in Him. But even they are nothing, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, nothing to be compared with the surpassing weight of glory that awaits us on the day of His return. We have faithful scriptures because we have faithful apostles who wrote them and gave testimony, in fact, gave their lives in belief of this resurrected Savior who they saw. We have forgiveness of sins because we have a Savior who defeated sin and therefore defeated death and is able to provide salvation for us. We have real hope and real comfort for those loved ones who died in Christ. We do not grieve as the rest of the world grieves because of this resurrection. And we have a living hope that floods our lives with joy and all of it because of our victorious Savior.
So this is the message. It's really simple. It's really simple. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you too will be saved. You will not be subject to death. You will not be dominated by sin. But you'll have eternal hope, resurrection hope, spending all of life in the joys and the bliss of the presence of your Savior. Our challenge to you today in this Easter, this resurrection day, is that you would accept that message, that you would believe that message, and that you would experience all the joys that God has for you in Christ. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. And a song and just a reminder, if you would like to respond to this message, if you'd like to have someone to talk to about this, we have a visitor greeting right down the hallway on the right. We encourage you to come by, see us. We'd love to have the chance to be able to greet you personally and talk to you more about this gospel. Father, we're grateful for the reminders of the resurrection. So glorious is your work. So magnificent is your power to overcome death and to overcome sin. So exalted is our Savior. Exalted now and for all eternity. We give him praise and we say that he alone is worthy. Because he alone was slain. And he alone rose from the dead. We know, Lord, he's the kind of first fruits a down payment on what is to come. And we look forward to the full inheritance which will be ours. We pray, Father, that you'd fill our hearts today with the joy of the resurrection. And for those who have never thought about these things, for those who've never thought about his worthiness and his resurrection, Lord, I pray that this would be a burning truth in their hearts. And that they would humble themselves before you and respond with repentance and faith and find the forgiveness of their sins. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.